0: Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more.
1: That was the word of the Lord. May be seated. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Luke Berlin and I was led by Amy Grant to believe that there would be more snow out in Colorado <laughs> than on the East Coast. But when I was a kid, we had this giant, enormous snowstorm. Um, I was about nine or ten years old. It was like three feet of snow. We get these giant storms out east. I live in Pennsylvania. And I remember walking out into my driveway after that snowstorm, and we had like a wide driveway. So the piles of snow on the sides of our driveway were like, I haven't been to the Grand Canyon, but I can't imagine it was more impressive than that. They were just huge. It was gargantuan. It was like the coolest thing for a little kid to like walk out and see that huge pile of snow. It was like, you know, the piles of snow at Walmart that like last longer than the snow cap on Pike's Peak. That's what I'm talking about. And what better way to enjoy a giant pile of snow than to build an igloo, right? So that's what me and my sister set out to do. We started with my, uh, like our sandbox toys, but soon realized we would need the heavy machinery of mom's gardening tools. And that's when we started to see some real progress. All right? I'm talking like, I had my own like little room with like a shelf and like a, you know, like a TV that I had, you know, like carved into the snow. My sister had a room. My brother Gino had a room. Our friends Kim and Sam had rooms. And there were like tunnels that would go and connected all these different rooms. I'm talking like five bedroom, no bathroom, thankfully. Masterpiece of like modern engineering and science. But all of that changed when my brother King Drool arrived. Now, if you, if you had the privilege of living here last summer and coming to church, you would have met my brother Mark. Um, and I think some people here actually got to go to college with Mark, which is really exciting for me to like make that connection. And Mark, um, let me describe him for you if you don't know him. He's this like six foot two, 220 pound, like beard of a Greek philosopher, happy-go-lucky, gentle, kind, loving human. But when he was a little kid, he was this six foot two beard no he he wasn't he he was like two years old but he was so so clumsy he was so clumsy he like knocked everything over i called him king drool because he just made a mess all the time so the king had now come and mom said he had to come play in my fort and i was not having it you know this was my fort i had spent so much time and it was like a three-day project because that's how much time we had off from school i had like spent so much time and energy on this fort and he was just going to come and destroy it like my kingdom was going to get destroyed by my little brother. I remember feeling so angry that I wanted to destroy it myself rather than give him the opportunity to destroy it in front of me. To this day, I have no idea if Mark destroyed that fort or not. I don't remember. Uh, Mark, if you're watching, I don't know, you can comment, okay? Let us know if you destroyed it. I don't remember. But I do remember the rage that I felt. I remember that anger that I felt when my kingdom was threatened. And that's what I want to talk to us about this morning. I think that all of us kind of know this feeling. The feeling of building something, creating something, you know, carving something out for ourselves. Maybe it's a job or a promotion at work or like the perfect workout or maybe it's just that five minutes of solitude like at the end of a week or like on your drive home only to feel that like anxiety when that gets threatened or the really like deep gut punch of losing it. I think this reveals something to us, something about our hearts. I think it reveals to us that we have kingdoms of our own making. But in this text and in Christmas, we see Jesus meet us in this. He's the true king. You know, we sing it in our songs, you know, let earth receive her king. We we read about it, this King Jesus who's coming. I mean, the very word Messiah means anointed one. Who's anointed? It's the king. The king is the anointed one, the true king of the line of David, this big prophecy from all time that the Israelites have been waiting for. That's who we're rejoicing has come now in Christmas. We're rejoicing at the coming of the new king. I don't think that we can really emphasize this enough. But what does the coming of this true king mean for us and for our kingdoms that we've built? I think it means two things. I think it means that since Jesus is the true king, we're free from the need to protect our kingdoms, And I think that since we are free from the need to protect our kingdoms, we are now enabled to worship. So, how does Jesus free us from the need to protect our own kingdom? Let's take a look at our text this morning. So, King Herod, he's the king of Israel, but he's not of Israel's traditional royal line. What I mean is he's not of the line of King David, right? He and Jesus are not like ancestors. I always wondered about this as a kid. Like, how did Israel have a king if they're being ruled by the Romans? But Herod is actually part of a group of people who fought back against the Greeks when they had taken over Israel and won back some semblance of independence by force. And then when the Romans showed up, they were like, mm, we're not going to get crushed by you guys. So we'll just, you know, bow to you guys, bend the knee to you guys, pay, pen, you know, pay penance to you guys. That way we can kind of keep our, our own little kingdom of Israel. And that's who Herod was. That's who his family line was. So Herod is this figurehead kind of puppet king of Rome over Israel but he's also the one who's sitting on Israel's throne supposedly holding the place until the true Davidic king shows up that's who Herod is supposed to be now in theory if you're waiting for something finding out this thing has arrived is good news I waited my entire life and many waited much longer to see the Eagles win a Super Bowl it was such good news when they finally won it a couple of years ago it was so exciting Christmas is like the perfect time of anticipation, right? Especially this year when everything was being delivered by mail, right? You didn't go to the stores as much to shop. Imagine that relief that you felt. Remember the relief? Like when you see the little like ding on your phone from your Amazon app, your package has been delivered. That's that kind of relief. You know, you feel, oh, thank goodness it's here, right? Happy, joyous, excited. Um, like even yesterday we were sitting at home we were waiting for a package and we see the fedex guy come and We're like oh, maybe that's the thing and we ran to the door to try and find out if it was and then it wasn't and we were disappointed so that relief that comes from receiving the weight you know the thing you've been waiting for and anticipating is a pretty cool thing and so that's what herod and israel's response should have been at the coming of jesus relief joy excitement but that's not what we get that's not what we see let's take a look at verse three It says that when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why do you think he was troubled? Why would the current king of Israel be troubled at the news that a new king was here? In fact, the king that they were waiting for, the king who was going to come and set them free. It's no stretch to surmise that Herod saw Jesus not as this joyful coming king, but as a threat to his kingdom. I mean, even the nature of Herod's kingdom is self-made, right? This is a kingdom that he and his ancestors have taken by force, that they've maintained through political maneuvering with the Romans. This kingdom is all made by the hands of Herod and his line. So if Jesus has been born and he is the true king, it means that Herod's days as king are limited. His legacy is threatened unless he can protect his kingdom. You see the anger that Herod was feeling, that anxiety that he was feeling, right? So much so that he goes and kills every child of his own people, two years old and younger, in a certain region. That's how much anger he felt. That's how much rage he had that he would go and destroy his own people just to protect his kingdom. I mean, this reminds me of myself in that opening illustration, right? I was so terrified of the fact that somebody was going to come and destroy something that I had built that I became angry angry vengeful, vindictive, willing to destroy my own creation just so that nobody else could have it. If you've read or seen Lord of the Rings, and yes, I said read first for all you book people out there, you may remember the character of Denethor. Denethor is the steward of Gondor. He's been part of this long line of stewards. His job was to rule the kingdom in place of a king until the true heir of Gondor returns. Sound familiar? There has not been a king in Gondor now for many years, and Denethor has grown proud and bitter in his waiting, seeing the suffering of his people and the death of his eldest son in battle. However, when he hears that Aragorn, the true king, is coming, instead of rejoicing, he says that he will refuse to bow his knee to this man. And he even goes as far as burning his injured youngest son alive rather than see him supplanted by the true king. In an ironic twist, Aragorn heals and saves the life of his son Faramir, spoiler, but Denethor, however, perishes in the fire even as the salvation of his people is upon him. You see how we feel this anger when our kingdom is threatened, this desire to kind of protect it and kind of even lead us to destroy things just to get our, keep our kingdom protected and keep our kingdom safe. But what does that anger really point to? I think that anger is like an easy emotion. It's a surface emotion. It's often like our first response emotion to things when we're threatened. But I think it points to something much deeper in us. So when our kingdoms are threatened and we become angry, it's pointing to deeper hurts and insecurities. So many of us are basically just walking wounded. We live our lives with these deep wounds, sometimes self-inflicted, but so, so often caused by others. We build kingdoms to protect ourselves, from the deep hurts that we felt. But when this becomes our ultimate goal, we have an idol. The coming of King Jesus reveals the deep idols in our heart. Jesus reveals our deep insecurity, our deep hurts, our deep needs. He shows us that those things that we feel that we need to have worth, value, meaning, and love in the movie Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrams is a competitor and contemporary of Eric Little. And I think that he hits on this mentality pretty perfectly when he describes what goes through his mind every time he's on the starter's block. He says, I will raise my eyes and look down at that corridor, four feet wide, with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. The kingdom of athletic achievement for him was the only way he felt like he could justify his own existence that hits pretty deep. I know that I've felt that myself, that very thing that needed to justify my own existence. I mean, in middle school, I was a bit of a late bloomer, and I just loved playing sports. But when I showed up to middle school basketball, the boys on my team bullied me, they made fun of me, all this different stuff, and it hurt pretty deep. So I decided I would get back at them, and my method was simple, become the better athlete. So in eighth grade, a routine started. I would go to school. I would go to the weight room and I would go to practice. I was the star of my soccer team for four years and then an injury sets me back my senior season. So angry, so frustrated, like what the heck? This is supposed to be my crowning moment of glory. So then I go to college, I've recovered. I become the star of my rugby team for four years. Then an injury sets me back my senior season. Again, frustration, anger, confusion. Take a couple years off from sports, start training again. I go to Ukraine and I think I'm finally going to hit this pinnacle of athletic achievement, right? Playing professional sports. I'm all set to play pro rugby in Ukraine, which is kind of like saying you're playing like pro-Ukrainian sport in America. Uh, like nobody's ever heard of it, like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But still, it was professional rugby. And even now, sometimes people ask me, what did you do in Ukraine? I'm like, oh, I play professional rugby. But what I actually did was I was injured for two years and played in two matches before another injury cut my career short. I was so frustrated, even now. I still, like, get frustrated and worked up about this. And what does this show about me? That deep down, I still feel in my heart that I'm not worth it unless I can be the best athlete I possibly can be. That somehow, deep down in my heart, I see that manifest itself out into other things that I do. That I'm not worth it unless I can be the best board game player I can be. Unless I can be the best pastor I can be. Unless I can save money and budget better than everyone else. You see how the deep hurt in my life causes me to sin, I think it's the same for all of us, that our deep hurts cause us to build these kingdoms of achievement and justification for ourselves. Have you ever felt that way? That you're not worth it unless you fill in the blank? You see, when we allow our careers, our financial security, our hobbies, our families, our marriages, our dating relationships, even our morality and our Christian activity to justify us and cover our hurts, We haven't become rulers of kingdoms. We've become slaves to idols. Look deep enough, and you'll find that at the root of your kingdom building is a hurt or a deep lie that is holding you captive to the need to protect yourself and justify yourself. But having Jesus as our true king sets us free from this. In the text, we see a different response to Jesus than the one Herod gave. We see the Magi. They get it, but Herod doesn't. The Magi, like Herod, they're people of power. We don't know their exact rules, but they were rulers and authority where they came from. I mean, they had wealth. Obviously, they could travel across the world and give gifts away. They have prestige, so much so that they can show up in a foreign court and have access, right, to, like, holy prophecies of that kingdom. And yet, they still have this desire to come and bow the knee to worship the true king. Herod, the Israelite, on the other hand, knows where the Messiah is going to be born. He knows all these prophecies just with the rest of Israel. They know there's a coming king they're supposed to be waiting for. And yet, instead of the response of joy and worship the Magi has, he plots to kill the child. For Herod, if Jesus is the true king and he is here, his reason for existing is in question. The hard work of his ancestors of winning back some semblance of independence from foreign powers is in question. He'd rather kill the true king and a bunch of his own people than give up his kingdom to him. But what the wise men understand is that if Jesus is really the true king, he is the justification for their existence. He is the one who will protect them, not their own kingdoms. They can give up power and prestige. They can give him valuable kingly gifts for his service. And this is important. The wise men don't cease to be wise men by worshiping Jesus. They don't cease to be rulers or powerful and prestigious because they worship the true king. It just proves that they know what's more valuable. They know what truly deserves their worship. They can fall on the floor of a little dirty house in Bethlehem, and they can give valuable treasures away because they know who really deserves them. They know that all their power and prestige and wealth is not for themselves, but is worth laying at the feet of the true king. Now, I would challenge us this morning that our academic careers, our successes, our financial security, hobbies, families, marriages, dating relationships, even our obedience to God is worth laying at the feet of Jesus to be used for his purposes, not for the purpose of us justifying our own existence. This, my friends, leads us into true worship. Let's look at the wise men. It says in verse 2 that when they see the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh." So what do we learn from them in this? What do we see about worship in this text? What's the first thing that they do before they worship? They see the star. They see the child. And then they fall down and worship. In order for them to worship, they needed to first recognize that Jesus was the true King. And I think for, for us, that's our first step as well, recognizing that Jesus is the true King Because only then can we show him the honor and worship that he deserves. In order to recognize Jesus, we have to know him. That looks like coming to corporate worship, to joining a Bible study, city group, or cohort group. It looks like spending time in the word and then talking about it with other people and coming to that deeper understanding of who Jesus is. We have to be able to recognize to worship. We can't recognize him if we don't know him and if we don't desire to know him imagine saying you're a fan of the Denver Broncos, right? And you don't know what color their uniforms are. You don't know who any of their players are. You don't know what their record is. You don't know if they, what, what time of year they play. That would be ridiculous. You'd get laughed out of the, you know, the sports bar, right? I'm a fan of the Broncos. Don't they wear green and gold? No, that's the Packers, you goofball. Like, no, that would be silly. You wouldn't say you're a fan of something and know nothing about it, right? Similarly, we can't say that we worship Jesus and not know who he is, that we follow Jesus, King Jesus, and not know anything about him. But once we do know about him, once we do understand him and can recognize him, then we're able to go show him the honor that he deserves. It says that the wise men fell on their faces and they offer him gifts. For us, this can look like a lot of things. I mean, it can look like praying, singing, journaling, creating art, but it can also look like living in a way that gives his name fame. The Greek word doxa, from which we get our word doxology, means glory or fame. When we sing in church, we do so to make him famous. When we worship, we do so to make him famous. When we make decisions with our finances, we make decisions that bring his name honor and glory. When we date people, we date people that are also passionate about Jesus and his kingdom. When we love our spouses and our family and the ways that we raise our children, we do these things in ways that bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus. I mean, the running club that Emma Thomas started is a great example of this. The group has a vision of fellowship with un- in members of the church, yes, but they also have a vision to go and run with other running clubs in a way that makes God's name famous. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Romans 12 goes into greater detail. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul spends the rest of the chapter talking about what a life of worship and a life given over to worship looks like. He talks about how we've all been gifted uniquely and how we should serve one another with these gifts in humility. But he does make the point that even the very gifts that we've been given are from God. So did you catch that? The very tools that we use to build our kingdoms are themselves gifts from God. So brothers and sisters, I ask you this morning, how can we hold on to our kingdoms as our ultimate safety and security any longer? How can they be the things that justify our existence when they themselves have been given to us as a means of grace from God? So now we have to ask the subsequent subsequent question, how can we now offer them, along with the rest of our bodies and ourselves, as a living, holy sacrifice of worship, pleasing and acceptable to God. Look, God's not asking us to renounce our jobs, take vows of poverty, live like hermits. No, he's asking us to find our reason for existence in him and to give every part of our lives, even our own kingdoms, over to him in order to be used for the glorification of his name and the service of others. Because Jesus is the true king, we no not longer need to justify our existence by building kingdoms for ourselves, but we're free to worship him and participate in the building of God's kingdom here on earth. My favorite Christmas story is A Christmas Carol. In this story, Charles Dickens tells the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. Scrooge is this miserly old man who does whatever it takes to build his kingdom of wealth. Money's the only thing that matters to Scrooge. When asked about Christmas, his famous line tells it all. It's a poor excuse to rob a man's pocket or pick a man's pocket every 25th of December. Money is his security. It's his fortress in a cold, hard world. But what does his kingdom building really reveal? What were the deeper insecurities underneath? When the ghost of Christmas past visits him, he sees himself as a young man so consumed with providing safety and security and a good life for the woman that he loves that he ends up ultimately driving her away. When you look further back, he sees himself as a little boy, all alone, insecure, and his only security was schoolwork as his friends left for the holidays and he had to stay and study. You see, his kingdom of financial security was just a cover for the deep hurts and the deep need to feel justified in his own existence. It was the only way that he was able to make sense of his brokenness and his pain. But after he sees the pain that his self-made kingdom is causing others, especially little tiny Tim, he repents and he submits his kingdom to the use of a higher power. For him, it's Christmas, right? But for us, we can see ourselves in this story as submitting our kingdoms to Jesus. He doesn't stop at being a rich man, but instead he submits his kingdom of wealth to the greater good of serving those around him. Once he realizes that his self-salvation project, his kingdom of money is only crushing himself and the people around him, he's able to go and essentially offer his body of wealth, his kingdom of wealth, as a living sacrifice. Friends, it's the same for us. Our kingdoms are so often covering our deep hurts and our deep wounds, and we build these kingdoms to protect ourselves and justify ourselves to others and to the world, and so often just to prove to ourselves that we have value and meaning. But the true King Jesus, in coming to earth, in feeling our pain and our suffering, by entering into our mess, and by dying for us on our behalf, has given us the freedom to lay our pains down at his feet, to trust him to protect us, to cover us, to heal us, and to lead us into a life of worship. My friends, you are worth dying for. As the poet Kevin Burgess puts it in his song, Sing to You, all night I couldn't sleep, thinking about all the joy I couldn't keep. All these holes in my heart, it just seems I've been pierced more times than I can speak. I got another hole from a friend last week. Lord, Lord, why so many holes in me? Then I saw the hands that were holding me. He said, I know you. Son, I've got holes too. When sorrow's falling down like rain, when I can hardly take the pain, I will lift up my voice to you and I will sing to you. When I don't understand it all, when all my strength to fight has stopped, I will lift up my voice and sing. I will sing to you. Brothers and sisters, Let us submit our kingdoms and our hurts and our cares to the true king and join together in worship of him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being our true king. Thank you for freeing us from the need to protect our own kingdoms and for giving us the ultimate
0: joy that is worshiping you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.